0: From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. To be honest with you, if I had to put my money on who wins in a showdown between Matt Whitaker on the one hand and Rod Rosenstein and Bob Mueller on the other, I'm putting all
1: of my money and I'll double it on Rosenstein and Mueller. That's Bob Bauer. He was White House counsel to President Barack Obama and co-chair of Obama's Presidential Commission on Election Administration. Long before that... He advised congressional Democrats during the impeachment trial of President Bill Clinton. I speak with him about the universe of lawyers surrounding President Trump, from acting A.G. Matthew Whitaker to former White House counsel Don McGahn to Rudy Giuliani, and what America can do to protect our elections. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Betterment is the smart way to manage your money. It's the investing tool for people who won't settle for average investing. Because really, if there's one area where being above average is especially nice, investments are probably it. Plus, this is a time of year when a lot of people start to really feel a financial pinch. The tax year is wrapping up. The gift-giving season is upon us, which means it's a great time to maximize your money. Betterment's technology is designed to help you make more from your investments. They offer unlimited expert advice to help you make smart financial decisions and their tax-efficient investing strategies can give you an edge. With Betterment, you get constant access to information and tools so you can track progress towards your goals. Betterment offers low, transparent management fees, no matter who you are or how much money you invest. Investing involves risk. Betterment can be your guide. And now, stay tuned with Preet listeners can get up to one year managed free. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash Preet. That's Betterment.com slash Preet. Betterment. Outsmart average. Okay, let's get to your questions. This first question comes from Twitter, from Twitter user William Crimes. William, I hope you don't live up to your last name. You ask, at Preet Bharara, hashtag ask Preet, Manafort, what in the living hell has he done? And I will say there were a lot of questions about Paul Manafort this week. And you asked the most succinct version with the proper tone. But obviously the question you're asking arises from the news in the last day that Paul Manafort who sought to cooperate with the government had his cooperation agreement uh, declared null and void by the government and by government, I mean, special counsel, Bob Mueller, because they claim in a three page memo to the court has said that subsequent to pleading guilty and agreeing to cooperate, Paul Manafort lied and not only lied one time, but according to the document that they put into the court said lied on a variety of matters. We won't know exactly what the extent of that is yet because they haven't filed a full pre-sentencing memorandum, but said basically this guy lied, lied again and again on a number of things. And so there's no need to postpone his sentencing any longer. So, you know, what to make, what to make of all of that? So just a brief recap. Paul Manafort was handpicked by candidate Trump in the spring of 2016 to be his campaign chair. At some point thereafter, when special counsel Mueller began looking at Paul Manafort's activities and financial dealings, ended up lodging not one, but two indictments against him, one in the Eastern District of Virginia and one in the District of Columbia, because Paul Manafort's lawyers wouldn't agree to waive venue so that both cases could be brought in the same place. And you'll remember that during the pendency of that case, Paul Manafort, among other things, lied about the conditions of confinement to get better confinement, engaged in witness tampering, decided to go ahead to trial in the first case, got convicted on a number of counts, thought better of his decision to defend himself in court, and rather than face the second trial, decided to plead guilty and consented to cooperate, and then even after that, lied, and then was given a great gift. And the gift is a letter that would advocate for leniency by the government if he agreed to cooperate. And really, he had only one obligation at that point, Notwithstanding his crimes, notwithstanding the cover-up, notwithstanding having been convicted, notwithstanding having put the government to its proof, and the only thing he had to do was tell the truth. And it seems that for a guy like Paul Manafort, that was exceedingly difficult and also arrogant. Having seen how well the the Bob Mueller team did at trial and how much evidence they adduced, as you can see from the indictments themselves, the idea that this guy thought he could get away with telling what must have been clear lies— is astonishing to me. You know, having dealt with a lot of criminal defendants, this level of brazenness by somebody who's educated and smart and privileged and moneyed is, is not unheard of, but it's pretty unusual, particularly when the whole world has been watching. So the other interesting thing I will say from the very short memorandum is how little defense his lawyers make of it. So usually it's the case if you object to the government's characterization of your lying, and the government is saying they're, they're ripping up the cooperation agreement and they're not going to give you the benefit of advocating to the judge for leniency for you. Ordinarily, you would expect his lawyers to be raising holy hell and to be saying, you know, you have it wrong, saying, look, my guy upheld his end of the bargain. He gave you information. It was substantial. It assisted you. And it was true. And you better not renege on your end of the bargain. And, and instead, they have a very lukewarm couple of paragraphs in this joint memo submitted to the court. Here's how Paul Manafort's counsel characterized the disagreement. Quote, After signing the plea agreement, Manafort met with the government on numerous occasions and answered the government's questions. Manafort has provided information to the government in an effort to live up to his cooperation obligations. Here's the third sentence. He believes he has provided truthful information and does not agree with the government's characterization or that he has breached the agreement. But then they say, fourth sentence, sorry, Given the conflict in the party's positions, There is no reason to delay the sentencing herein, and he asks the court to set a sentencing date in this matter. Now, it may be that there will be a much more vociferous argument that he didn't breach the plea agreement, and these things weren't lies, but it doesn't sound that way from that language, and it sounds like the Mueller team, as you might expect, has him dead to rights on multiple lies on multiple topics, and so that's bad for Paul Manafort. Uh, He's not a young man, and he was facing the prospect of a lengthy prison term, and this was his you know, a little bit get-out-of-jail-free card with the consent of the government. That's now gone. One other question that arises from this is why isn't Paul Manafort seeking to withdraw his guilty plea? So if he thinks that the government is reneging on its bargain, then he can renege on on his own. Two answers to that. One is the agreement, I believe, provided pretty explicitly that if there was a breach uh, that was caused by Paul Manafort, that doesn't give him the right to withdraw his plea. Now, from time to time, people do try to withdraw their plea agreements, So what happens if the court would let him do that? Well, he doesn't go off scot-free. Then he has to go to trial. And he already made the determination that he probably wouldn't fare well at the second trial. And remember, he did go to trial once, and he was convicted. So he's still in pretty terrible shape, even if he was able to withdraw his guilty plea, and there's no evidence that he's going to seek to do that. So his best option is to throw himself at the mercy of the court at a sentencing that will happen probably in the near future, and to argue that the lies that Bob Mueller is stating that he told are overstated or incorrect, but it doesn't look very good for Paul Manafort at all. So the implications for Paul Manafort, terrible, terrible, terrible in terms of his freedom. The implications for Bob Mueller, as I've said, if Manafort had useful information that could have been used, that's never gonna see the light of day in a courtroom. They have made the determination that they can't ask a jury to believe anything Paul Manafort says after his repeated lies, he's useless as a witness. The implications for Trump are, I guess, twofold. One, he's a little bit off the hook to the extent, this is all speculative, but to the extent that Manafort had information that was incriminating of the president, at least Donald Trump knows that Manafort will not be testifying about that publicly in a court, even if he gave some evidence to the prosecutors that they can use. And the second implication is what does Donald Trump do with respect to the big P word, pardon? I don't know. Uh, Some people have speculated that Paul Manafort may be engaged in this conduct because he had the promise of a pardon. That makes no sense to me. There, there are other ways you know, to sort of secure your pardon and not implode before a court that's going to be sentencing you in a few weeks. So I, I don't know that any arrangement has been made. I think in some ways, Donald Trump, who's a pretty self-interested guy, maybe he wants to do the guy a favor. On the other hand, maybe he doesn't need to and doesn't need to suffer the political fallout from pardoning him. Last point that occurs to me as I'm speaking this aloud, and I haven't thought too deeply about it yet, is... You know, every time there's talk about pardoning somebody who's involved in the Mueller investigation, people say, well, is that evidence of obstruction? Well, I got to tell you, there's a decent argument for that, depending on the timing of the pardon and on the intention behind the pardon, the motive for it. But in this case, after we now know that the prosecution wants nothing to do with Paul Manafort any longer, if Donald Trump were in a month going to pardon Paul Manafort, it's a much more difficult argument to make that that constitutes any evidence of obstruction. So... What I'm really looking forward to is the promised document. Mueller's team said the government will file a detailed sentencing submission to the probation department in the court in advance of sentencing that sets forth the nature of the defendant's crimes and lies, including those after signing the plea agreement herein. I'm very interested to read that. There's a possibility that that document will not immediately become public and may be filed under seal or portions of it filed under seal if the lies would somehow, if publicly disclosed, undermine pending parts of their investigation. But you know there's a presumption of having court documents not be filed under seal. You have to have good cause for putting it under seal. And then that seal doesn't last forever. So at some point, if not in a few weeks, but eventually, we'll get to see and probably talk about all the lies that Paul Manafort told after he was given the gift of cooperation. One last thing, at the time of this taping, and this is uh, after lunch on Tuesday, there's a report from one news outlet, The Guardian, that Paul Manafort, in the spring of 2016, met with Julian Assange. That's pretty sensational stuff, if that is true. Because, as you remember, Julian Assange, the head of WikiLeaks, was responsible for leaking all sorts of damaging, harmful internal emails of the Clinton team and the Clinton campaign. And this whole exercise has been about, what, collusion. And whether or not people from the Trump campaign sort of conspired with other people and, and people who were foreign to damage the Clinton campaign and clearly the WikiLeaks very scheduled very organized very intentional leaks of hacked emails and stolen emails was damaging to that campaign so what role Paul Manafort had in that and how much of that was being coordinated by Donald Trump or others is of course of central importance my caution though is at the time of this taping I haven't seen any other news outlet confirm it it seems like a big deal and I'm just, I'm just, at this moment, and I can be proven wrong at any any minute, I'm a little skeptical of that reporting. This next question comes in the form of a tweet also from Mad Pinto, who says, here's my question. The president has submitted his answers to special counsel Mueller now, but I'd like to know, was it done under oath? Thanks, Preet. Hashtag Ask Preet. So this, this is a recurring question about the way in which people provide information to law enforcement officials. Is it done under oath? Is it done under penalty of perjury? Uh, is there a possible crime if you lie? My suspicion is, and we haven't seen the document, is that it's very clear, and it's been made very clear to the lawyers that the, that the answers that Donald Trump is giving, that he adopts them, and that if there are material lies in them, he could be prosecuted under the statute 18 USC 1001, which is the statute we've been talking about a lot over the course of the last year and a half, because it's the lying to law enforcement statute that has been used time and time again. Um, whether or not there was a, a formal oath, uh, probably not.
0: Hey, Pri, my name is Michael. I'm calling from Saratoga Springs, New York. Can Matt Whitaker see the names of people in a sealed indictment? Is it illegal for him to share those with the president? And does he know everything that Mueller knows? So those are my three questions. Thanks very much. Love the show.
1: Thanks, Michael. Good question. So if he is the appropriate supervisor uh, and overseer of the Mueller investigation, and he has taken the place of Rod Rosenstein, and Bob Mueller is not fully independent, according to the special counsel regulation, he must report to someone. And if that person is now Matt Whitaker, which it seems like it is, then Matt Whitaker can ask for any information that he wants as the supervisor. He can ask to see sealed indictments. He can see the names. He can ask for briefings on what the witnesses have been saying so far. There's an interesting give and take in any supervisory relationship, including when I was the U.S. attorney and there was an attorney general about how much information you share. I don't think that Bob Mueller and his team would be playing any of those kinds of games. We've had this debate over the last couple of weeks uh, that's sort of interesting on the ground that maybe Bob Mueller would refuse to share certain kinds of information or refuse some direct orders from Matt Whitaker because he's not duly appointed and there are various lawsuits trying to determine whether or not Matt Whitaker is properly appointed under various statutes and also the Constitution. It seems unlikely that Bob Mueller would play that kind of game, and I think he would be forthcoming and forthright if these questions are asked. But I bet all of that is documented. They're all keeping track of what they're telling Whitaker to see if something comes out in the news otherwise, because so far I think it's been pretty airtight. And ask your question of whether or not Matt Whitaker can get the information from Mueller and then share them with the president, with respect to sealed indictments and things that are that are part of grand jury proceedings, which a sealed indictment would be, I think there's a very good argument that, that would be breaking the law. And Matt Whitaker, even though you know, some people have described him as not being the sharpest knife in the drawer, is still a professional lawyer. He's a member of the bar, and he has to care about his legacy in the future as well. So, you know, I have deep concerns about whether Whitaker will, you know, wink and nod at the president or make sure that the Mueller investigation doesn't get far afield in his mind, and that it is constrained in some way. And I'm more concerned that he will find subtle ways to do that, as he's outlined in prior writings by, you know, withdrawing resources or limiting resources, rather than blatant, you know, grand jury secrecy violations. I, that that seems unlikely to me, but I suppose these days anything is possible. My guest this week is Bob Bauer. Bob was White House counsel to President Barack Obama and general counsel to Obama for America, the president's campaign organization, in 2008 and 2012. He also served as co-chair of the Presidential Commission on Election Administration in 2014. And decades earlier, in a role that has new resonance today, he was first outside counsel to the Democrats during the impeachment trial of President Bill Clinton. We talk about a lot of things, including the role of the White House counsel, how Don McGahn did in the job, and who would win in a Mueller-Whitaker standoff and his take on the prospects for an impeachment of President Trump. I also spoke with Bob about Paul Manafort and Justice Roberts' rebuke of President Trump. To hear that part of the conversation, become a member of Cafe Insider and check out the interview bonus on our website, cafe.com insider. Stay tuned to Supported by the New Yorker. The New Yorker is an iconic magazine that represents the best writing in America today. You've heard their writers here on Stay Tuned. Jane Mayer on Brett Kavanaugh, Ronan Farrow on Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement, and Jeff Tubin with Me Live from Town Hall. Their reporters hold people in power accountable through rigorous reporting and compelling storytelling. And they don't just cover the subjects we tackle here, politics, justice, and the law. Every week, there's great reporting on international affairs, climate change and the environment, science and technology, business, fiction, poetry, food, humor, and cartoons. The New Yorker gets you interested in topics you never knew you'd find fascinating. Paper jams, fault lines, heirloom beans, stink bugs. Seriously, that stink bug story was amazing. So don't wait. Go to newyorker.com slash preet. Listeners of Stay Tuned saved 50% when they enter code word preet. With this special offer, you'll receive 12 issues for just $6. Plus get the exclusive New Yorker tote bag. You can choose between print, digital, or a combo print and digital subscription. Subscribe to The New Yorker and read something that means something. So don't wait. That's 12 issues for $6 and a free tote bag when you go to newyorker.com slash Preet. Stay tuned to supported in part by Away, makers of first-class luggage at a coach price. My family was just traveling for Thanksgiving, and we used our Away carry-on. It's called the Bigger Carry-On. For probably obvious reasons. The interior of Away's luggage, or the inside, as normal people would probably call it, has a patent-pending compression system, which is extra helpful for overpackers. And Away carry-ons are able to charge all cell phones, tablets, and anything else that's powered by a USB cord. A single charge of the Away carry-on will charge your iPhone five times. There's a TSA-approved combination lock built into the top of the bag to prevent theft. A removable, washable laundry bag keeps dirty clothes separate from clean. And there's a lifetime warranty. If anything breaks, they'll fix or replace it for you for life. Plus free shipping on any Away order within the lower 48 states. So for $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com Preet and use code Preet at checkout. That's awaytravel.com Preet and code Preet for $20 off a suitcase. Because this season, everyone wants to get away. Bob Bauer, thank you for being on the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So we have a lot of things to talk about, some things that are timeless, some things that have just happened. But I thought we'd start with the basics. So you're one of the few people in the country who has ever had the position of White House counsel. And I've been practicing law for a while uh, and have dealt with White House counsels before. And even I'm a little confused. What the hell does the White House counsel do? Depends on the administration. Depends on the
0: president. There was no White House counsel until the Roosevelt administration. And even then, the White House counsel really didn't function in a legal advisory capacity. The first White House counsel was primarily a policy and political advisor. And that remained the case, ironically, until about the Nixon administration, at which point John Dean conceived of it as uh, a role in which someone led a small law office providing legal advice and support to the West Wing, to the executive branch, to the executive office of the president. The first most important point to emphasize is that the White House counsel is an institutional lawyer, not a personal lawyer to the president. That seems to be obvious. That's been debated a great deal.
1: Readers in various op-eds have been reminded of that. But where is that, where is that written? Did you get a little um, pamphlet when you showed up that says you're the institutional lawyer? No. The- No. But what you do,
0: I I think, and this is probably typical of incoming White House counsels, you seek out the advice of former occupants of the office, your immediate predecessor, and anybody else in any other administration whom you can speak with. And you understand, first and foremost, it follows from your status as a government-paid employee. You're not on the personal payroll of the president. You're paid for by the taxpayers. Now, that distinction between the public and the private breaks down a little bit, or at least it Create some interesting tensions because the president that you represent is a flesh-and-blood individual who is elected to that particular office, having made certain policy and other commitments, and having chosen someone to be his or her counsel. So, of course, that client that you're advising, the office of the president is embodied in that particular individual. Keeping an eye, however, on the institutional interests as you advise the president is a critical responsibility
1: of a White House counsel. But most of the time, you would think then— That the duty aligns and they are in sync with each other. Your duty to the office of the presidency should also inure to the benefit of the occupant at that time of the presidency. In what circumstances do those two things come into conflict that requires, you know, a, a proper minded White House counsel to give advice that is more for the benefit of the office than for the office holder? Two particular
0: situations come to mind. I don't think that they're all-inclusive, but they're illustrative. One has to do with every president who runs for re-election, and this wound up being a pit into which John Dean fell in the Nixon administration, which is you're responsible to the president as a public official. You're not actually advising the president as a candidate for political office. And so in those circumstances, there has to be a really strict separation between the institutional advice you give and the advice that in the middle of an election campaign a president may be looking for, some help the president may be looking for, that it's not the White House counsels to give. The other, which I think we've had some experience with recently, is a president who has no conception of how government works, no understanding of the role of the White House counsel and who in his business life, and I'm obviously speaking of President Trump here, has had an entirely instrumental view of the role of lawyers and of legal advice because he, the president, struggles so much with understanding the difference between the institutional and the personal role. That obviously puts an enormous amount of pressure
1: on the lawyer. Let me ask a a question this way. There, There are sort of three prominent kinds of lawyers associated with this president. There's the White House counsel, Used to be Don McGahn, now is someone new. We'll get to Don McGahn in a second. There's the attorney general, which at the moment is acting attorney general Matt Whitaker and was Jeff Sessions. And then he's got his personal lawyers, and that's sort of a revolving door of, of lawyers. Yes. Yes. Uh, currently Emmett Flood, who you don't hear a lot about or from, but also Rudy Giuliani and others. How are they supposed to interact with each other and keep separation from each other and serve their particular roles correctly?
0: It's tricky. Obviously, uh, the uh, president operates in the West Wing and some of the demands that the president uh, may, for example, encounter from the office of the special counsel calls for officials to give testimony, calls for potentially official documents or an accounting of official actions to be given. And so the White House counsel becomes involved in thinking through, for example, questions of executive privilege.
1: Whether right, they... And that's all proper. So, for example, correct, it is, it is not automatically the case— that you have a special counsel who's investigating you know various things that might affect the white house that all of a sudden the president has to get a personal lawyer it's perfectly appropriate for the white house counsel. so for example uh, you know i i helped to investigate the department of justice when i worked in the senate and and when i worked for senator schumer and it was a bipartisan investigation and the staffers and the senators would go to the white house and we would haggle about executive privilege and about documents and we dealt with fred fielding the former white house counsel for, for george w bush there was no other lawyer That was proper, right? Correct.
0: There are circumstances in which an investigation takes place. uh, Here's an example where there are questions that necessarily bear on the way that the office was conducted, like an inquiry into obstruction of justice. And the White House counsel is going to end up being involved in receiving demands for information from government officials and documents from the government that bear on the investigation into that particular allegation. Now, that president, if the president himself is potentially a subject or a target of an obstruction inquiry is going to require personal representation. So then the question is how do the lines get kept straight? That is a role that Ty Cobb played at one point in the Trump White House. It appears that role has now come to Emmett Flood that they operate as government employees. They're not personal lawyers, but they're also not in the White House Counsel's office. Right, so it's sort of, it's an odd hybrid. It's an odd hybrid. And their role is to try to make sure in these special circumstances that the personal as well as the official or the complex entanglement of the personal and the official are in practice addressed
1: appropriately. So Don McGahn was the first White House Counsel for President Trump. Did you know him personally? I do. Do you have an opinion of how he did his job?
0: Yes, I have an opinion on um, how somebody could make the best case for Don McGahn, having served this particular president, who was obviously hard on the legal furniture.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He treated him like furniture, like like maybe a pet would treat the furniture. Yes, and
0: I I think that Don McGahn and the people who support Don McGahn, and particularly the people in the Congress who have been close to Don McGahn, he has a very well-known, strong relationship with the Republican congressional leadership, and particularly in the Senate, We'll say that Don McGahn made the most of a very, very difficult situation. He leaves office uh, having clearly laid out there for the world to know, and I think this all came out of the West Wing generally, that he yeah. was focused on judicial nominations and deregulation. Which are two successes for this administration from their perspective. From their perspective, two successes, particularly on judicial nominations, including two Supreme Court uh, confirmations, the last yeah. of the which second was one a little bruising. It was a bruiser. <laughs> it was a bruiser. It was, it was very yes. difficult. But both of them. Both of those nominees are now sitting on the Supreme Court, and of course, they've had tremendous success in placing judges in district courts and court of appeals around the country, and then whatever he contributed to the deregulatory effort. On Russia, when all is said and done, the press—and this is, of course, all what we know from general reporting—suggests that Don McGahn made an effort to basically hold the line against the president's complete misunderstanding of what he was permitted (laughs) to do in his own self-defense— so the president apparently at one point wanted Don McGahn to pressure then Attorney General Jeff Sessions for the firing of uh, Bob Mueller. Don McGahn refused to be a party to that.
1: Can, and, can we pause there for a second? Certainly. How do you, this is speculation, Before, but you work in the White House. How is it that we know all this? In other words, it's a roundabout way of my saying, was Don McGahn, you can conjecture if you're prepared to, you know, making a case for his own reputation in the press or through allies? Because otherwise, I don't how do we know this?
0: Well, we know. of course, we know there's a leak machine. We also know that you know better than I do that in these cases, there's a defense bar that's constantly talking among themselves. And some of these leaks come either from the directly involved defense counsel or from other defense counsel talking to the press who are buying
1: favor with the reporters that they deal with. Right. Uh, but, but most of these right. leaks, I think, depending on your perspective, and if you mm-hmm. take the perspective of sort of rational-minded, institutional, respecting lawyers, I take you to be such a person i like to think I'm such a person, and there are lots of others, that most of the leaks about Don McGann's conduct all paint him in an excellent light. Not, not Maybe not an excellent light, but paint him in the light that you've been describing as someone who held the
0: line. Yes. Uh, some people might criticize still. For example, there are some who may have been critical of his willingness even to raise with Jeff Sessions yep. at the president's request whether he'd be willing to reverse his recusal in the Russia matter. But it appears that when Sessions told McGann that he wasn't prepared to reconsider the recusal. McGahn walked away from it and didn't put any additional pressure on him. So, but you're right. On the whole, I think that narrative has been favorable to McGahn. I don't know whether it came from McGahn or whether it came from his allies. Uh, I don't know whether, for example, there were some people in the know who thought it was helpful to let the president know that these stories were not helpful and give him a sampling of how bad those stories for him could be.
1: Who's to say? Do you find it extraordinary that if it's true and I believe it to be that that Don McGahn cooperated extensively with the Mueller investigation up to and including giving many, many hours of interviews. Well, let's pause on that for a moment. Mm -hmm. If you had been the White House counsel in a similar circumstance, would you have done the same? So you raise a very interesting question, and I'll have to say it depends on what the facts were.
0: So let's assume, for example, that I... I cooperate because I have to cooperate. There's no way in the world the White House counsel can't cooperate unless the White House counsel has individual legal liability, in which case, A, he or she might have to take the fifth or sort of attend to his or her own personal representation and then have to conclude perhaps that he or she can't continue in the job. But let's assume for a moment that none of that is true. The White House counsel has an obligation to give testimony in those circumstances, so I'm not surprised by that. Let's assume too, for a moment, that Don McGahn believed that he could give this testimony and it might not reflect brilliantly well on the president, but it wouldn't doom him that he didn't have any reason to believe he was sending the president, you know, at least a good measure of the way toward prison or disgrace. In that case, you could see him fulfilling an official responsibility to testify and at the same time, believing he could continue in the job. If, on the other hand, I were the White House counsel and I thought my testimony would be damning to the president testimony I had to give, I couldn't function in the role any longer and I would have to
1: leave. That's interesting to me, but you would still give the testimony. I would give the testimony, but I couldn't continue. Right. So there's no circumstance in which you feel that would be appropriate to resist the testimony. Even no, Lots of fights happen all the time. And depending on the administration and the particular investigation, where it's coming from and how damaging the material is, over-assert executive privilege, deliberative privilege, and all sorts of other things, You know, why not potentially use that as a route if you're Don McGahn?
0: Well, that's an important point. I mean, I I don't mean to skip over the need to make sure that the scope of the testimony is appropriate and that uh, privilege is properly asserted or observed. I agree with you. That has to happen. But let's assume that's all squared away and there are legitimate areas of inquiry and a requirement for testimony that the White House counsel by any stretch of the imagination has to give even if it's directed toward the president's conduct. I think there's no way around it. I think the White House counsel has to testify. What I was driving at is that if at the end of the day, the president believes that the testimony you're giving is extraordinarily damaging to him, and you actually are of the same view, it's sort of difficult to see how you maintain the confidential professional
1: relationship that's necessary to serve the president. So here's the second part of that um, story about McGann giving a lot of testimony. As has been reported, it seems that he did it all without coordinating or communicating particularly closely with uh, Donald Trump's lawyers. And there was this reporting somewhat breathlessly in the last few months where it is suggested that the president's lawyers, Giuliani and others, don't really know what Don McGahn told the special counsel. If you had been in the position of Don McGahn and given this testimony, what would have been your approach to sharing information about the questions and the answers with the lawyers who are closer to the president and serving a different function for the president? In the normal
0: course, you'd expect that your lawyers would have the sort of protected communications, appropriate protected communications with counsel to the president. The worst case interpretation of what we read in the press, assuming it is correct, is that Don McGahn and his lawyers did not believe they could trust counsel to the president to have that information. And so they decided not to provide it or they provided a very edited version. And that goes again to, I think, the dramatic, professional hurdles facing a lawyer
1: in Don McGahn's position advising a president like Donald Trump. It's kind of a tightrope yes. for him. But so what are the other explanations as to why he wouldn't share? Could it be that he was just not asked? I find that really <laughs> hard to believe because that would seem to be- you, you find you find, uh, you find incompetence on the part of lawyers who have been hired by President Trump in the past to be inconceivable?
0: Well, I, I'll be charitable and say, in view of the word incompetence, I'll say professional shortcomings. But professional shortcomings, in my mind, are not equivalent to malpractice. And a lawyer for the president who didn't ask the lawyer to don McGann for an accounting of the sort of scope of the testimony and the basic gist of the testimony would be, I think, going beyond simply exhibiting personal or professional shortcomings. I mean, that would be a remarkable omission.
1: And that's why I don't know whether it happened or not. Right. But, I mean, but, so just to play it out for a second, if you assume— that the questions were asked, and you assume that the reporting otherwise is correct, that a lot of stuff wasn't revealed. So the lawyer for the president says, hey, Don, uh, how long did you testify for? In your 17 hours of testimony, what did you tell them? And when Don again comes back and says, I told them these three things, and it takes a minute to describe, doesn't the lawyer <laughs> for the president then say, I think you're leaving some things out. You should tell us more. I just don't see how that, how that works out.
0: I agree. I mean, I I think if it took three minutes for Don McGahn's lawyer to explain, you know, 17 hours of testimony, my antennae would be up and I'd wonder what I wasn't being told. And you know, again, better than I do, that the details and the texture of the testimony is really all critical to
1: understanding the import of that testimony for the president. Do you find it – so another – we'll stick on Don McGann for a couple more minutes. Mm -hmm. This newspaper report in The New York Times – That is another example of what you mentioned before about Donald Trump asking McGahn to see about firing Mueller. It was reported that the president told Don McGahn to tell the Justice Department to investigate and prosecute Hillary Clinton and Jim Comey. To me, that seems like a different level of outrageous bit of conduct on the part of the president, something we shouldn't see in this country. I have a number of questions about that, but let me just ask you the the softball. What was your reaction to that?
0: That Trump asked McGahn? Correct. I, I was not surprised. Because after all, he's not saying anything to McGahn that he hasn't announced through Twitter a million times, that he's angry with the Attorney General for not investigating him, doesn't understand, is convinced the crimes were committed that have been, you know, left unexplored. That McGahn resisted didn't surprise me. McGahn apparently
1: wrote a memo. So let's his, talk about that memo. Yes. So I keep doing this because you're no, here. Of course, and of course. There's very few people like you. So this is very exciting for me, and it should be exciting for everyone. So let's say it's you, let's say the president. Ask you to make that call about investigating political rivals. And you clearly, knowing you, you would say, No, that's a terrible idea, Mr. President. Yes. I'm not going to do that. And you shouldn't do that. And you should stop it immediately. Yes. And it could result in your impeachment. Would you then write a memo? Well, the answer is probably not,
0: and I'm going to be very careful because second-guessing people who deal with Donald Trump is so hazardous because I don't know <laughs> what they're facing. It's a different sort kind of we, thing. It's a different kind of thing, but I, I, I would be probably very reluctant to, to leave anything in writing that memorializes that request was made in the first place.
1: Well, it depends on what your interests are. So if your interest is in causing no further harm to a president who has already harmed himself by saying to another human being to do this thing that could be impeachable in some people's minds— then yeah, you wouldn't write the memo. But if you also have an interest in self-preservation, because you don't know later what someone is going to say that you did and whether you were hospitable to the idea, then maybe in a CYA fashion, you would write the memo. I don't know how you balance those things.
0: Well, that's true. Uh, you might write it for reasons of self-preservation. You might write it also because it's the baseball bat that you're using to hit the president over the head with, and you, you yell at him. He yells back at you. The two of you are in a disagreement. Right. And you tell them, I'm so serious about this, I'm actually going to
1: create a record. Right. So and then proceed defy to it. risk. It's much right, And then to defy, it's a much bigger deal, I guess, for the, for the record, the historical record, the legal record, the congressional record, if it comes to it in the future, that your White House counsel, who you handpicked, wrote a memo saying you cannot do X or Y, and then the president does it anyway, much more so than there having been a conversation that's not recorded. Yes.
0: And I had in mind also that faced with the fact that it had been committed to writing, it may be that the president, not satisfied with the verbal exchange, would back off at that point. I mean, I think it's highly unlikely if McGahn had an erudite memorandum written on the reasons why presidents shouldn't direct the political prosecution of their opponents, I think the likelihood that he expected the president to read, absorb it, and ask informed questions about it are very low, is very low. So it seems like it was more of a weapon in the battle to make sure that he was pushing back successfully. It may have well also had the element of self-preservation that you suggest.
1: If such a memo exists, do you think the public will ever see it?
0: Yes, I do think one day the public may see it. When? I don't know, but I doubt seriously it'll stay inside the White House. Oh, because of the leak machine? Because somebody will think it's in their interest to take it out of the building.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of people who have their own interests at heart which makes for a complicated situation when people also have, particularly the lawyers, have duties to their their oath and as officers of the court. Yes. Um Let me, let me ask this question. So you're a White House counsel, we'll stop talking about Trump for a moment and talk about Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. Was your job, you think, different because your boss, the president, was a lawyer himself? Yes. It How was so? it was different. Well it was, was it more the, annoying because he knew the cases often himself? and could second guess you and felt more comfortable doing so? Or was it a treat that someone, you know, who was erudite in the law was also your client, not your client, I guess, but your boss? Well, I'll refrain from saying
0: that any of his behavior toward me was annoying. I'll say, <laughs> I'll, you know, I'll, I mean <laughs> that in a good natured yes, way, like yes, smart I, clients can be annoying. Yes, I, let's put it this way. It, it generated extra pressure on the lawyers to be very clear and precise in their legal reasoning and to be prepared to explain their legal conclusions because he could call you on it. Right? So, for example, we wrote memos for Barack Obama, and I'm just stating this as a matter of fact, on issues like you know, the standards of review that courts would have to pick in deciding a particular constitutional issue. And we wrote it for someone who knew the difference between those standards of review, understood the difference between rational basis scrutiny and strict scrutiny. Now that is, A, a pleasure because it means it's not necessary to explain to him why that's an important question to address. Obviously, it also means, you know, that you're writing for a very sophisticated consumer of legal advice, and you want to make sure, you know, you're really, he's not going to take your say-so. You have to be convincing in your explanations. And so that's, I think, an additional disciplining force
1: for the lawyers, and it's altogether a good thing. Part of the job of any good lawyer is to say no. That goes back to the beginnings of legal tradition in Mm -hmm. every country. Did you ever have to tell Barack Obama no because he wanted to do something policy-wise or legally, and have to be persuasive on that and and have an argument about it? Or was your advice always taken immediately? I will not say it was always taken immediately.
0: (laughs) Uh, Sometimes um, the advice was taken uh, under consideration and after I had justified it, you know, after I'd answered questions about it. You raise an important point about the role of the White House counsel. I made a point of not giving the president policy advice because that wasn't, in my view, our role. And there were two reasons for it. First of all, it's not the area of expertise. I didn't think the president uh, needed me to explain to him in the closing phases of the healthcare program or the healthcare bill lobbying uh, which provisions of the ACA needed to be tightened up on a particular question. I mean, that's just not my expertise and why in the world would I give him that advice. Or for that matter, even advice about how best to sell it to the Congress. So we were not communication specialists, we weren't policy specialists, we were lawyers. The second reason that's really important is that if lawyers become involved in policy disputes in the West Wing, then there is a good chance that they will be considerably less effective in their role as lawyers, because one camp will conclude that if Bob Bauer or some other White House counsel is taking a position on policy, does that mean that the legal advice has been shaped? to the White House counsel's policy preferences, or is the White House counsel consistently being an honest broker, giving the best possible judgment just about the law? And I think staying on that right side of the line as an honest legal advisor, an honest broker legal advisor is absolutely critical to the performance of the White House counsel. On the question of whether the president ever questioned my legal advisement without getting into specifics, I would say that he was a
1: gracious but tough taskmaster and one had to make one's case. You know he's not in office anymore correct you can dish a little bit pop well
0: not really (laughs) i think
1: (laughs) okay all right that's fine um yeah but it's sort of interesting what you're saying what the role is because there there are sort of general counsels and special counsels and chief counsels in other environments depending on the circumstances who don't see their job necessarily as being the honest broker about describing the legality and propriety of engaging in certain conduct whether it's the aca or drone strikes or the appointment of an acting attorney general but rather as counsel who provides the justification for the thing that the leader wants to do whether it's in a white house or anywhere else
0: the white house counsel can certainly provide the best argument but the white house counsel has to be honest about how strong an argument it really is and i think the most important thing the white house counsel has to avoid being if you will is an enabler by sort of inflating the president's hopes that say he has a lockdown legal argument for something that's pretty shaky. I also want to be very clear about the difference between giving policy advice and bringing your knowledge of the political and legislative process into good, actionable legal advice. So for example, let's assume you have three alternative courses of action. One of them is going to trigger major political sensitivities and could result in oversight hearings on the Hill. Well, when you tell the president that's one of the downsides of that particular option, you're clearly giving a kind of political advice, but it's practical. It means understand there's an option here, but that option's going to have consequences, and those consequences clearly implicate your legal affairs because, after all, oversight hearings, or hearings involve demands for documents and demands for sworn testimony, and a lawyer has to be sensitive to the possibility that a course of action could create those additional problems so i don't think a lawyer has to be blind to the environment in fact can't be blind to the environment in which he or she's operating but at the end of the day you want everybody in the room to walk out and say that white house counsel gives really good legal
1: advice and knows which lane he or she is operating in but what you describe is great and i agree with it but that's not in any statute or regulation either that role right that's absolutely not. based on common sense, yes, you know, practical wisdom, and tradition, yes, all of which can be thrown by the wayside if the president so chooses, right? I mean, he, in other words, he, the next White House counsel to come in, I don't know anything about this gentleman, and if he's the permanent one, could be employed to do all those things that you're talking about. In other words, mm-hmm. help the president achieve his agenda, whether it's well-considered or not, in a way that he can argue some legal basis for and and give to lawyers who go on television to support, do you think there should be some institutional way to cause the White House Council in the future to be constrained in the way you've described as opposed to being an enabler?
0: Yes. And by enabler, let me just explain what I mean by enabler, which I obviously don't mean as a compliment about somebody's professional performance. I mean somebody who disregards the institutional role and the need to be responsive to these institutional requirements and who sells the president a bill of goods on the strength of legal arguments, contrives arguments that are not reasonable, that if promoted by the president will cause major issues for the presidency and maybe even major issues for the president. I mean, enabler is essentially as close to being a bad lawyer as I know how to describe it. You want someone who's independent-minded as well as, of course, responsive to the requirements that the president has for for legal advice. But an enabler is somebody who's tossed all that tough-mindedness and independent professionalism to the wind, and has just become essentially a member of the
1: sort of interpolitical circle, and that's not helpful in a lawyer in the White House. But it's, it, I take from your answer that it's difficult to think of a way to institutionalize that, because yes. the president could decide to bring in somebody, here's what I want, I'm, I was sick and tired of Don McGahn telling me no, mm-hmm. of Don McGahn writing these CYA memos, of Don McGahn not getting what I wanted to get done, done. And so now I'm going to bring someone in. Look, a little bit, some people argue, is this is what's happening at the top of the Justice Department. Is it your view that Matthew Whitaker was appropriately appointed acting attorney general? You mean as a prudential matter? Yeah. No, absolutely not. Have it as a legal matter?
0: I tend to think there are arguments that the administration can successfully muster that the appointment was a lawful one at least for a limited term. I'm not going to pretend by the way I've mastered the subject matter I'm ready to argue in front of the Supreme Court of the United States. It's but just, there's just a podcast Bob. Right, right well, I know. I know. That's a good point. <laughs> I don't, don't want have to me, I don't don't want be obs- I don't want to be obsessive compulsive at your expense here. <laughs> but what I what I what I have uh, no doubt about is that nothing could have served the president less well than this appointment. This was a bad judgment across the board. It's not going to get him what he wants, as far as I can tell. It has continued to deplete his political capital and credibility on these issues, and any White House counsel would have told him, I would think, what in the world are you doing?
1: Well, what do you think Whitaker is constrained by? So if you, if you take him at his word when he was a talking head about how the Mueller investigation had gone far afield, and it could be starved of resources, and that's a sort of interesting, clever way to cause it not to do the work that it's doing... What do you think is the real constraint on Whitaker bringing those things to come to pass in the coming weeks?
0: First of all, I think if Whitaker has a sense of self-preservation, if he's involved at, at all in pressuring Mueller, I think he's going to end up in front of the Congress with sworn testimony and who knows what additional consequences. So I think right off the bat, a message has been sent to Whitaker that he should be very careful, and I suspect that will have some effect on him. I also, to be honest with you, if I had to put my money on who wins in a showdown between Matt Whitaker on the one hand and Rod Rosenstein and Bob Mueller on the other, I'm putting all of my money and I'll double it on Rosenstein and Mueller.
1: You were of the view that the president of the United States through lies he has told publicly, not to law enforcement um, under penalty of perjury, but to the public, let's Mm -hmm. say on Fox News, are potentially a basis for impeachment. Mm -hmm. How is that?
0: So, first of all, I think we have – and I'm going to just sort of clear the decks by saying this. We have gotten to the point where we think that the impeachment of a president for just outright demagoguery and reckless behavior is somehow unthinkable because it would bring us to the brink of constitutional crisis. And the only basis for impeachment is if we catch the president in committing the most serious kind of felonies. And I think that's wrong. I don't think that's at all consistent with the constitutional record. If a president is a committed demagogue, and the founders were explicitly concerned about demagogues, they were concerned about demagogues coming into possession of the presidency, and in the pursuit of just rank self-interest, is constantly deceiving the public, lying to the public, deliberately misrepresenting facts, so that that president introduces chaos into the Bali politic, defies any reasonable expectation that citizens have about how the president will relate to them, what the president will account to them for. I think that's absolutely impeachable. An example, the House Judiciary Committee approved an article of impeachment of Richard Nixon for lying about whether or not he had directed an investigation of White House involvement in the Watergate burglary. He lied about that. He hadn't done anything of the sort, and he said he had, and that was one of the approved articles. So and That was really a public statement. That was absolutely a public statement, and, the, and uh, there is no question that's precedent now. As Phil Bobbitt, who wrote this excellent supplement to Charles Black's famous handbook on impeachment has said, when we look at the law of impeachment, it includes what past Congresses have done. And so that's precedent, that a president can be impeached for lies. That was one lie about one investigation in which the president clearly had self-interest and it was impeachable. How many lies has Donald Trump told and on how many material issues? I lost count. I recently wrote a piece in which I thought that the claims that he's made about the electoral process in this country. It's corruption and that the voting systems are rigged and that fraud is being committed and whatever, completely inconsistent with his oath of office. It's a violation of voting rights. It's an attempt to discourage people from confidence in the electoral process. It may have the effect of discouraging people from voting. And I think that behavior in the aggregate is impeachable. I'm not unrealistic that will not be the sole basis alone for an impeachment inquiry into Donald Trump's conduct i see no reason why it wouldn't be included or considered
1: do you think impeachment is a foregone conclusion with the democratic congress or do you think they will be restrained because they think it's a political non-winner instead of focusing on kitchen table issues somewhere in between might
0: confidence in in the likely next speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and the leadership team is that on the one hand, they recognize that the public wants less politics and more action on the issues that they care about. And they're going to worry about a Congress that is paralyzed by a preoccupation with impeachment. So I think they're sensitive to that. They will be sensitive to that. But on the other hand, I also think they know that they have a constitutional responsibility of evidence services of impeachable conduct to take it seriously. And I think they should. I hope they do.
1: So it'll be an interesting year no matter what. Uh, it's always an interesting <laughs> right. year. Yeah. So you, you spent a lot of time in your law practice on the issue of elections mm-hmm. and voting and yes. how voting can be fair. And as I mentioned in the intro, you served as co-chair of the Presidential Commission on Election Administration. Why is it so hard for America in 2018 to get elections right? Every time we have an election day, including this past one in the midterms, you see these crazy scenes of machines not working or lines being too long, or people who are arguing that their votes are being suppressed, how come we can't get it right?
0: Insufficient national commitment to building a durable, modernized electoral infrastructure. We simply don't have that commitment. As soon as elections are over, and we have results that people by and large live with, and they do by and large live with them, right? Then all of a sudden we're off to other things until the next elections are held. We found in the presidential commission when we went around the country, that in state legislatures, and uh, even other governing jurisdictions below the state level, the allocation of resources for elections, for the actual conduct of elections, is way down the list of priorities. Any number of other things that elected officials believe the public needs come first. And so, as you know, we have aging equipment, well, well past its buy-sell date. And we are courting a disaster because we're not making an investment at the federal level or around the country in superior equipment. We're not making an investment in the recruitment and training of poll workers. Frankly, we're not making an investment in the establishment of uh, viable polling locations. I mean, I could go down a whole list of problems that we have because we just won't make the resource commitment.
1: We're not taking it seriously. But, why, but why aren't we? You know, you, you hear politicians, at least in their rhetoric, yell about it, scream about it, tweet about it. Um, write about it at the time of the election. You know, they say every vote must count. And maybe it's only, you know, in service of their particular need at that particular time if they think they're on the other side of these problems. So they certainly talk a lot about it. Why do you think they lack the will to make it actually happen? They lack the will, I think, because there's insufficient public
0: pressure on them, to be honest. If your trash isn't being picked up, it's not being picked up, you know, 52 months a year an election takes place once every 2 years an election place every 4 years and then eventually somebody's declared a winner takes the oath of office and begins to vote right and so it's behind you and it's just too easy for politicians to blow past that and that's in fact what's happened uh, we we just don't make the commitment the the public has to demand more of this and and to some extent by the way there's been some expression of public will that's had an effect for example the significant expansion of early voting around the country has taken place both in Democratic and Republican locations because voters have thought, well, why is it that I do so many things online with great convenience and voting isn't one of them? And so there's been some attempt to answer that need, can you work but, on New York because we don't have it in New
1: York? Well, it yeah, makes no uh, there's an. Ex- <laughs> it makes no sense to me.
0: And my understanding is that the New York City—I mean, I'm not an expert. I don't vote in New York, but I, I understand that in New York City, you know, the electoral machinery leaves a good bit to to, to to be desired. So, that's a problem we see around the
1: country, and the commitment simply is lacking. If you could wave a magic wand, this is my magic wand question. Okay. for you, Bob Bauer, and you could only enact one reform, whether it costs money or doesn't cost money that would increase the franchise or or increase voter participation or fairness, what would it be? Can I make a two? Do I get a bonus? Okay, Uh, you can have two.
0: Okay. Voting on a national holiday. uh, I think we shouldn't require people, even though we have early voting and that's helped a great deal, it is just manifestly unfair to try to cram all that voting into a 12-hour day that different people with different schedules and demands in their lives have to navigate differently and, and not always fairly. And the second is that we need to spend a huge amount of money on replacing voting machinery and going to a new generation of voting technology.
1: Is there a perfect voting machine? Is there one that everyone no, should use? No, no. there is not. I, I don't think there's a perfect voting machine. But is there a best one that every state should aspire to have?
0: Well, I'm certainly in the school, and I I think that's generally the view, that we need a voting machine that has a verified paper trail attached to it, right? There's got to be some paper record that you can use to audit the results, and that's an absolute requirement. To be – by the way, this may seem a little quirky, but I'll bring it up. Um, One of the things that I noticed uh, that is problematic for the conduct of elections and for our confidence in elections – is the insistence on having immediate results. And I don't see any reason why we need immediate results. Frankly, I'd be just as happy if everybody in the United States until we get the technological problems worked out, voted on paper, and we gave election officials two weeks uh, to tally and announce what the outcome was. It wouldn't kill us. And it would. It would kill people, some people. Well, I know some <laughs> people would be very unhappy <laughs> about may, it. Maybe
1: that. That maybe that's Darwinism. Maybe that's okay.
0: Well, and and one. <laughs> maybe maybe that's so. And the problem, of course, the problem, of course, is uh, that you know, right now, look at what happened the last time around. You know. There were statements made about the outcome of the election that were way ahead of the counting of results on the West Coast. There were races that were called for people where significant amounts of votes still had to be counted. And once they were counted, the outcome of the election originally announced was reversed. This fosters a belief that something funny is going on. It leads to charges of vote fraud. It's completely unnecessary. And I think we ought to have more patience.
1: Well, you know, the hard part, I think, also is with respect to people having faith in the electoral process, particularly in close elections, when it's a landslide, you know, Mm -hmm. people buy the results. You know, I'm a reasonably educated person. And, you know, I talk to more educated and smart people. It becomes hard to discern who has the right side of the argument in some of the local races, whether it's a governor's race or a Senate race, whether it's, you know, Alabama or Florida. And I, you know, I have my view on who was making the correct argument, who was not. But it seems very easy for one candidate and their allies uh, to make a claim that they're being treated unfairly because votes are materializing after the date or um, without evidence, just being able to claim that uh, you know non-residents voted. Uh, how is the public supposed to make a determination when they read the newspaper and watch mainstream television as to what the truth is?
0: Very difficult, but there is one thing we're doing that makes matters vastly worse which is leaving partisan election officials around the country in charge of the election administrative process is outrageous. These positions should be completely professionalized and independent. They should be removed from any potential political influence. If you had serious professionals who were speaking to the integrity of the electoral process and reassuring the public about how elections functioned, there'd be less space for these charges and countercharges that have this eroding effect on public confidence. So that really, that needs to be changed. And by the way, I, I just have to say, the recent years of campaigning for voter restrictive statutes like voter IDs and more limited early voting and so forth, with all of the inflated, uh, not only inflated, but frankly, groundless claims of voting fraud, which has now reached the point where the president of the United States is joining in, uh, is a disastrous development for public confidence in the electoral process. And all the more reasons that everywhere else we can, including in promoting professionalized election administration, we have to do what we can to shore up that confidence because there's a huge political movement to undermine people's confidence in the right to vote.
1: Yeah, two reactions to that. So the first thing you mentioned with respect to you know, election officials – also running for for offices themselves, so it's not a nonpartisan, independent, disinterested group who's doing it. The most outrageous example of that, would you say, was in Georgia?
0: Yes, that was an outrageous example. And by the way, okay.
1: yeah, to, just to, to tell what the example is. So, well, the so
0: example it, was that the the same person who was uh, superintending the electoral process was a candidate for governor. Um, and was making statements and acting in ways that just undermined any reasonable confidence in his fairness. And as you know, ultimately that became an issue in the concession speech of the defeated uh, Democratic candidate who who actually didn't concede but said this election has been marred by all sorts of irregularities in the way the electoral process was run and in the way her opponent uh, handled those responsibilities while also being a candidate. But even in cases where the partisan elected official is not a candidate in that same election, he or she is also potentially subject to enormous pressures from the political party they're affiliated with. And that can disturb public confidence. I mean, you've imagined, uh, you imagine, know, if you recall, Katherine Harris in Florida during the Gore recount. Who doesn't? Right, exactly. <laughs> she wasn't a candidate, but the question was, to what extent was she really addressing the public interest in a fair recount, or bowing to the demands for her own party to tilt the election in the favor of uh, then-Governor George Bush. It, it's just inconceivable that we keep this state of affairs going.
1: So we just had an election. The race for the presidency in 2020 is already underway. I think there are, mm-hmm. by my count, 94 Democrats running for president, maybe 194 by the time we get to it. You mean Speaking, by the time the show is over. Yeah, by the time the show is over. <laughs> yeah. um, But speaking about elections for a moment that we're talking about, what should we be worried about and looking out for in terms of making sure that everyone gets to vote properly in 2020? Some of these reforms are great that you've referred to and that your organization proposed. The likelihood is that that can't be enacted and wouldn't be enacted in the next couple of years. So what, what can people do to assure themselves that things go well state by state in two years?
0: First of all, just to, to, the, to the credit of uh, President Obama's commission, some of the reforms that we advocated uh, actually went into an implementation phase once the report had been filed by the president, and there have been efforts on the part of localities to adopt some of these recommendations, for example, to shorten uh, lines and improve poll worker training and the like. So we've seen some movement also, the expansions I mentioned earlier of online voter registration. As for 2020, the public pressure on localities to account for the way they're preparing for the election, I think is exceptionally important. I will say this that should be somewhat reassuring. It reassures me. When we traveled around the country for a year in preparation for the report to President Obama as part of that voting commission, the overwhelming impression we had was that, and yes, you're going to have variations in quality of performance, but election officials around the country really want to get it right. They really do, because they're in communities where their reputations are at stake. If something goes wrong on election day, those reputations suffer a serious blow. They're frequently blamed very much for matters over which they have limited control, including, for example, the hand they're dealt and the quality of the equipment they're given. And so I think that the civil rights organizations in the United States who have been so instrumental on in voting rights issues. The candidates – Parties and particularly, I I hope uh, you know, with Donald Trump, I don't have much hope for the Republican Party's contribution to the effort. They have perfected ways over the last several cycles to cooperate with election officials to enhance the quality of administration and to communicate, I think, some level of confidence at the state and local level that elections are being properly prepared for. Is this a durable, you know, secure arrangement? No, and partly because. The president of the United States has insisted, beginning in 2016, when he said if he lost, he almost certainly lost because of fraud, who claims that 5 million people voted illegally and every single last one of them in 2016 voted illegally for Hillary Clinton, which is a quite remarkable percentage. All of that is creating pressure on public confidence. And we need public officials, including election officials, some of whom have been quite vocal on this point, to send a clear-cut message that just isn't true and to help counterbalance those claims.
1: Bob Bauer, thanks for being it's with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Bob Bauer. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at preetbarara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669 669- 24 preet or you can send an email to Stay Tuned at cafe.com Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe it's produced by Cat Aaron and the team at Pineapple Street Media Henry Malofsky Joel Lovell Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky the executive producer at Cafe is Tamara Sepper and the Cafe team is Julia Doyle Calvin Lord Vinay Basti and Jeff Eisenman our music is by Andrew Dost I'm Preet Bharara stay tuned Simply Safe is the home security for right now. When feeling safe at home has never been more important, Simply Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24/7, starting at fifty cents a day. Order online easily, open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. No technician has to come to your house. Head to simplysafe.com/preet and get free shipping and a sixty-day money-back guarantee.